0: Hi, I'm Marshall Poe, and welcome to the New Books Network. Today we're talking with John Wood, who is the author of Creating Room to Read, a story of hope in the battle for global literacy. John, thanks very much for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Marshall.
0: Uh, I told John in the pre-interview that I really only have one question for him, and I think it's the question that most people will want to know. And that is simply this. John, you've built an incredible organization doing fantastic work among people who uh, I think appreciate it more than we can possibly imagine. And you did it in a kind of remarkable way. How did you do it? How did you create Room to Read?
1: Well, it started with just one simple library in a little village in Bahundanda, Nepal. And since then, it's you know exploded beyond my wildest dreams to the point where we i Have now opened 15,000 libraries. And so, how do you get from one library to 15,000? I guess a lot of it is uh, passion and determination to help kids in the poorest parts of the world to have access to books. Uh, part of it is building a great team. I've been fortunate enough to have some amazing people join on this journey and, and help form a nation room to read. And I think a lot of it is by reaching out just to people like you, Marshall, people who love books, people who cannot imagine a life without books. And I say to everybody I meet, through Room to Read, we have that same chance to uh, give millions of kids in the poorest parts of the world access to books and libraries, and hopefully they can also grow up with a love of reading.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that is what we're about. As I said again in the pre-interview, you know, the New Books Network is designed to give people access to books, or at least the content of books who ordinarily wouldn't have it. Um, can we talk a little bit about something you mentioned in the book, very briefly, and I don't want to get into jargon or anything like that, but social entrepreneurship, is this a, an example of social entrepreneurship?
1: I think it is. I mean, I, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, it's a term that's tossed around a little bit here and there. But I think the key thing is really the entrepreneurial part. I mean, entrepreneurs, in my mind, an entrepreneur is someone who sees a vacuum, who who sees a gap in the market and goes after it. And that can be someone like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, or it can be somebody who's a entrep- uh, social person who does it for non, uh, uh, for purposes other than profit. In my case, a social entrepreneur, I think says there's a problem that exists out there. We have to go solve it. I'm not doing it to make money out of it. I'm doing it because I just think that kids deserve an opportunity to read and an opportunity to have libraries from a young age, an opportunity to grow up literate. So I guess that does make me a social entrepreneur in a sense that I'm trying to address a market gap, and it's a pretty um, you know, significant number if you think about the fact that 780 million people in today's world cannot read or write. 800 million, you know, Nearly 800 million people are illiterate. Two-thirds are girls and women, and if we don't change that, we really do not change the face of poverty.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty, it's a pretty basic skill in modern life. It's something that people need to be able to do. I, I like what you said about seeing a vacuum. Um, I think it used to be called when I took economics in college that you saw such a thing, and then you did market entry or something like that. Um, but I, I think that a lot of people have the experience of reading the New York Times or whatever and, and asking themselves, well, why doesn't somebody do something about this? But I think the difference between you and you know, sort of entrepreneurs is, is well, why don't we do something about this? You know, if not me, who?
1: Exactly. When I started Room to Read, I never had any idea it would get as big as it's gotten. But my role model was really Andrew Carnegie. Um, Carnegie, toward the end of his lifetime, decided that it was um, unacceptable that poor people were denied access to books and libraries. As a result of that, the you know public library system in the United States was was built out over two thousand five hundred libraries. But back in 1998, when I started doing my first libraries, I asked myself, who is the Andrew Carnegie of the developing world? I mean, if, if, if Carnegie is viewed as being one of the greatest, most strategic philanthropists of all time for building libraries throughout the United States, certainly somebody must have done the same thing for the poorest parts of the world. Yet when I went out and looked up who's the Andrew Carnegie of the developing world, I couldn't find any people who were emulating what Carnegie did at scale. So in, in a certain sense, I said, well, I guess if that hasn't been done yet, that's a great opportunity. Maybe I should quit my job at Microsoft and devote myself full-time to this and become the Andrew Carnegie of the developing world.
0: Yeah, that's a tough thing to do, though. I know that in my own experience, when I started the first channel on the New Books Network, this is five years ago, I had no – it was an experiment. I had recognized the kind of vacuum, that is to say – I mean, this interview is about you, but it's a parallel experience. I had recognized that there were a lot of very good books that could teach a lot of people things, and they weren't reading them. Um, and they weren't reading them for a lot of reasons, but I thought, well, how do we bring them that content? But it's a big jump to go from there, recognizing that vacuum, to building an organization, and then, and this is the tricky part, quitting your job. <laughs> you know, that, that my wife is wondering whether I'm saying. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that transition.
1: Well, I think, I think quitting your job to devote yourself full-time to something that's brand new is definitely a challenge. If I had quit my job at Microsoft and told people I was going to work at Google, they would have all nodded and said, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. When I quit my job and said, people said, what are you going to do post-Microsoft? And I said, well, I'm going I'm to deliver books on the back of yaks to rural Himalayan villages. People <laughs> thought I was, you know, a little bit, a little bit crazy. Uh, and maybe I was a little bit crazy. But in my mind, it just didn't make sense to me that, the, that children are being penalized for being born in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you look at a country like Nepal, or Cambodia. You find villages where over half the adults are illiterate, and it's hard enough to survive in a place like post-Khmer Rouge Cambodia or post-war Sri Lanka as is, but if you can't read or write, if you've not had any education, the odds are stacked against you. So when I looked at the situation, I said, this doesn't make any sense to me because these kids are being penalized for being poor. They're born in the wrong place at the wrong time. Their parents cannot afford books. Their governments cannot afford to build schools. And therefore, the, people, the poorest of the poor are always going to stay poor. And it's one thing when you see the statistics. A billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Two billion people live on less than $2 a day. Those are very depressing statistics. I think it's another thing when you realize that maybe you have part of the solution, that if a child grows up reading and if a child gets educated, just like you, just like me, that educated child can take care of themselves, and they may not need foreign aid in one generation, if every child can get educated.
0: Mm-hmm. There's, there's another part of your book, and this relates to quitting your job. This is something that I've learned in um, starting various projects like this. And let me just see if this resonates with you. One of the things I tell people about starting these things is the first thing not to do is ask permission. Never ask permission.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I think that if you ask too many people for permission. They're going to tell you all the reasons. Are yeah, not there. to do it. People told me all the all the reasons that the odds were stacked against me. I and mean, to be clear, when I quit Microsoft to start Room to Read, I didn't have a gazillion dollars to be able to fund the projects myself. I was going to have to go out and ask a lot of people for help and be able to. You know, I had to be a fundraiser from day one. Yeah. And if I had listened to the people who told me all the obstacles, I probably would have never got, gotten started. And so part of it for me was just a matter of just diving in. At Room to Read, we have a saying called GSD which I'll give you, the, the, there's two, two ways to spell out GSD. I'll give you the PG-13 version, which is get stuff done. Yeah. And the idea behind GSD is, you know, don't talk, act. Don't sit around talking about the obstacles. Get out and just take action. And most importantly, I think, don't spend too much time talking about the problem. Yeah. Talk about the solution. At yeah. Ribner, we always talk about the fact that for $35,000, we can build a four-room school block. For $20,000, we can build a library building in a place like Cambodia, Laos, Nepal. For $5,000, we can open a classroom library that serves 400 children. So think about that for a second, the fact Mm -hmm. that only $5,000 is what stands between a community with 400 students having a library versus not having a library. And I think too often in the charity world, people get caught up talking about the problem What we say is GSD, talk about the solution, talk about how we can get things done. And Mm -hmm. that's how we've gotten to the point today where Room to Read's opened 1,600 schools. We've opened 15,000 libraries. It's not magic. A lot of it is just having a strong work ethic and waking up every morning to say, let's GSD. Let's reach more kids in more places, and let's not let anything
0: slow us down. Yeah, yeah. I like that attitude of doing it and then sort of learning about the results. I mean, that's sort of the scientific method, really. And this happened also in the New Books Network. I went to my university and I said, I want to start this consortium of podcasts about books. And they said, "Uh, let's form a committee and have a meeting. And I'm like, I don't think we're going to do that. I don't don't need a committee (laughs) or a meeting to do this. I'm sort of informing you this is going to happen now. So I I really like that part. One of the things that I found extraordinarily refreshing about your book is not only uh, did you see this vacuum, not only did you put together a team to address it or fill it, but you raised the money for it. And there's a sentence in the book, I, I can't remember it quote it exactly, that said that you like fundraising. And I love that. Can you talk a little I, bit about that?
1: I, I do. Well, I mean, to me, I think the, the joy in fundraising is being able to envision exactly where the money is going to go. And sometimes people get caught up being intimidated by fundraising as they say, well, I'm afraid to go ask that person for money. And I always remind people, you're not asking for the money for yourself. You're asking for that money so that a girl in rural Zambia whose mother has a second-grade education can go to school and finish secondary school and be empowered by education. You're asking for money so that a rural village in Nepal can have its first library and 400 little kids, adorable little kids, can learn to read for the first time. So I am, you know, unabashedly enthusiastic and unapologetic about fundraising. It's how I spend probably 75% of my
0: time mm-hmm.
1: out on the road trying to convince people, companies, foundations to say, come on, get on board. This is, this is a great thing we can do. And the beautiful thing about it is that today, you know, over 7 million children have access to schools and libraries and literacy programs and girls' education opportunities that are offered by Room to Read, 7 million kids in 10 countries. And this is a total bootstrapped organization. We didn't start off with an endowment. We didn't start off with a huge team. We just basically were a bunch of individuals who had quit their corporate job. 800 million people are illiterate, would like to make a dent in that issue in this lifetime.
0: Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah, no, that's...
1: that's... You can't do that that without fundraising. Mm -hmm. At Room to Read, we say, no money equals no mission.
0: Well, you describe some instances of fundraising. You talk about fundraising in the book. And again, this is something that I found extraordinarily refreshing. I mean, if you're going to... You know you, you, there are two ways to get money. Basically, I mean, you can either go get it in the market for money, uh, that is to say, borrow it, or you can uh, produce something of value, somebody will buy, or you can ask people for it. And you talk about experiences, uh, asking people for money. One of the things you say is that you always, and I hesitate to use this word, but you always pitch it as an investment. It's not alms. It's not charity.
1: Exactly, and I do, I do, I do believe it is an investment. I mean, if you look at what, how Carnegie is viewed libraries, those are viewed as an investment because he put his his money in, and an investment by definition is something that pays returns year after year after year after year. If it's a good investment, it pays returns year after year after year. And I think with education, it is ultimately the best investment in the world. And we know that people are giving money to charity regardless. There's billions of dollars a year given to charity. What Mm -hmm. I try to argue is if even a small amount of that gets reallocated to help the poorest of the poor To learn to read, the poorest of the poor to go to school, their lives will change. We will change the world in our lifetime. And Marshall, I'm guessing that probably, just like me, you probably have a parent, a grandparent, or a great grandparent who lived in poverty. Most of us do. Mm -hmm. And most of us, for most of us, the relative or the ancestor who escaped poverty almost always has education to thank. Mm -hmm. So at Room to Read, we're one big, um, you know, kind of pay it forward machine. Mm -hmm. But we're saying all of us who have education have a chance to give back. We all know that without education, you're not you. Without education, I'm not me. Why not give that same opportunity to a kid in a poor rural village in Tanzania or South Africa who would not otherwise have an opportunity to get educated?
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I agree completely. Another thing I really liked about the way you do things is the flexibility involved and the ability to take risks. There's a moment in the book where you talk about after having supplied millions of books, I think, I can't remember the number, English language books, you realize that and again, to to use the language of business, that your clients don't exactly want any more of this; they want something else, and then you find that you can't supply it, so you become a publisher.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was a pretty cathartic moment in the book. It was one of my favorite chapters to write. It was uh, the chapter is titled "Searching for Seuss," and the idea was, you know, we had to go out and find the modern equivalent of Dr. Seuss in Cambodia, the Dr. Seuss of Sri Lanka or the JK Rowling of Nepal. Let me explain to your, to your listeners what I mean by that. Throughout the developing world, there are not books um, for children written in the mother tongue. And the reason for that is that the parents are too poor to afford books. So as a result of that, the publishers have no incentive to produce books because the parents are too poor. So if you look at the entire supply chain of poverty, a lot of it goes back to the fact that kids in a country like Laos or Vietnam or South Africa or Tanzania don't have books in their mother tongue. And if you think about that for a second, I mean, imagine for, the, for your listeners who have children, imagine if the only books your kids had available were in Azerbaijani or Armenian. Well, maybe that's an interesting language to learn as your second or third language, but how, you really, if you want to get literate, need to be able to read in the language that's spoken at home. So Room to Read realized another big market gap, and we said, okay, we need to go out and address this because when we surveyed students to ask them, what would cause you to use the library more often? would it be longer hours, would it be open at night, open on weekends? The number one answer we got, 52% of the kids told us they'd use the library more often if there were more books in the mother tongue. And so there's nothing quite like staring at that number and realizing, okay, 52% of our kids are telling us we're letting them down, we're not meeting their biggest needs. And so that's how Room Read became a publisher. Now again, just as with the story of that first library in to Nepal, it was all a matter of starting small and then scaling from there. In 2004, we did our first 10 titles in, in the uh, Nepalese language. In Nepal, we found local authors. We found local artists. We worked with them to produce really beautiful children's books. And originally, it was just 10 books. Now, by the end of this year, we're going to have produced over 1,000 original titles. <laughs> we're now publishing in 22 languages. And I have to read as the biggest children's book publisher you've never heard of. We're <laughs> publishing in all these very obscure languages, but... Kids love the books all the more because they can really relate to them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you went further than that. You wrote some yourself.
1: I, I have. I've written a children's book that can be found on Amazon. Actually, a couple of children's books is turning into a series. Uh, the first book was, was called Zack the Yak with Books on His Back. And the reason I wrote this book was it's all about a magic yak who delivers books to kids who don't have them because a lot of our investors who have young children said, I'm trying to explain the concept of room to read to my kids but they can't picture a world without books. So the idea behind Zach the Yak was to produce it um, under an all-profits-to-charity model and uh, have a book about uh, a Yak who helps kids who don't have books to get their first book. So it's a very hopeful children's book that really teaches kids not just about the problem, but also teaches kids about the solution, because the kids are asked to kind of join with Zach. Uh, we, we actually call it Take Action." Uh,
0: or take the action. That's great. Um, That's great. So everyone go to, everybody with uh, children out there, and I have young children, to go out there and buy Zach the Yak. um, Well,
1: the nice thing about it, too, is that I've set it up as an all-profit to charity model. So the idea is that people buy one copy of Zach the Yak that actually produces enough profit for Rim to Read to actually print five local language children's books. So it's kind of a buy one,
0: give five model. Yeah, that's really great. So you mentioned... um, uh, Working with uh, your I, again, you know, it's hard to say. Working with the children and their parents in these localities, one of the things that you do that you talk about in the book is that you have—I um, don't exactly know what to call them—kind of matching grants.
1: Yes, challenge
0: grants. Challenge grants, yes. Can you talk a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, I would love to. The the idea behind a challenge grant is relatively simple. It's that you know you really can't help people if they don't want to help themselves. And what Room to Read does is when we work with local communities, we say, we would love to work with you, but we're not going to build a school for you. We're not going to build a library for you. We'd like to work in cooperation with the local community. So Let's talk about how the community can co-invest in each project. And so we have parents who will come out and dig the foundation for this school or who will carry the building supplies from the roadside up the steep donkey path to, to the mountain community or who will come out and build the shelves in the library, or who will come out and paint the walls of the library. And the idea behind the challenge grant is just, I think, very, very simple. It's that rim to read doesn't want to do everything for the local community. We want to do things with them and be co-investors. Likewise, rim to read asks the government to provide assistance by paying for the teacher salaries and by paying for the librarian's salaries. So it's a really different model in the sense that I think that many times in foreign aid, well-meaning, well-intentioned people from outside the country come in and just give things away. And, of course, we, as we all know, free is not valued. So the idea is when we work with the community, we're going to co-invest with them, but we can only work with them if they want to actually contribute their own resources to the project. We know that way that it's valued. Right. And in a certain sense, Marshall, this is a bit like what Carnegie did. When Carnegie built, um, helped communities to build libraries um, back in the 19th century, he said, I'll build the building. I'll pay for the building, but the community has to actually come up with the budget to pay for the books. And so in a certain sense, all we're doing is emulating a great example from long, long ago. But I think even if an example is old, if it works, stick with it. Don't get too complicated.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let me talk just a little bit. I didn't want to go in this direction, but it's an interesting one. I've lived a lot of places in the United States, and a lot of them had Carnegie libraries. And in many cases, those Carnegie libraries are not libraries anymore because the locality can't fund them. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sustainability of uh, the room to read libraries and other programs?
1: yeah, certainly i think I think one of the key reasons we have our challenge grant program is exactly for the purposes purposes of sustainability that if the community values the uh, the, the project enough to put their own resources in, and if the government, the Ministry of Education values it enough that they put their resources in. Then you set yourself up to be successful because the local communities believe in the project, co-invest in it, and feel a strong sense of ownership. Now, we believe very much in the idea, as Reagan said about Gorbachev, trust but verify. <laughs> we, we trust that it's going to work. But that being said, we're very fortunate that the Gates Foundation um, funds all of our evaluations so we can actually hire outside evaluators to go and make random unannounced spot checks on our projects to assess, okay, what's going on? Is this working? Is this not working? So for the libraries as an example, we did a study last year that went back and looked at the libraries that were now independent mm-hmm. to figure out, okay, are they, after Room to reads no longer involved, are those libraries still up and running? And the good news is that 98% of our libraries were still up and running even after they, they had become independent. So that's, you know, pretty good, 49 out of 50. That's a good start. We also will then look at the reasons for the libraries that didn't keep running well, what, what happened, what can we learn? Because we're very much at room to read a learning organization. We have very smart people on our staff who go out and make sure that they're doing surveys and interviewing local people to find out what didn't work and what can we improve over time so we can always hopefully be an organization that's constantly improving. But mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, 98% is a very good number. Um, can we push it higher? Uh, I hope so. We're certainly going to keep trying to do that and maybe push it to uh, you know, push it up a bit.
0: Yeah, I I read about that on your website and I wanted to I wanted to and I wanted to give you a forum to trumpet that that figure. Cause 98% is pretty incredible. If any corporation could get something like that, they'd be very happy. Um, it also reminded well, I me also,
1: I should also if I could Marshall, mention that any of your any of your listeners who are academics or who want to look at our results, uh, you know, roomtoread.org is our home mm-hmm. and it's a very data-rich environment. We believe very much in running a transparent organization. So when we do those Gates Foundation funded evaluations, we post those up to our website, yeah. we don't we don't blackline out the stuff that makes us look not perfect. We believe in running a transparent organization. <laughs> we post those evaluations to the website, warts and all and I'm really proud to say that Charity Navigator, which is you know one of the, the probably the most prestigious rating agency for public charities, they give every charity between zero and seventy points um, for transparency and financial accountability and on a scale of zero to seventy, we get seventy
0: Wow. And I'm
1: really proud of that because I believe that when you run a charity, you need to treat your investors like exactly what they are, investors, and report back to them and be honest and accountable. And so 70 out of 70, I think, is our statement to say we believe very much in running a transparent organization.
0: Right, because this is an easy dodge for people or rationale for people who are thinking about investing and don't invest, and that is, well, I don't know where the money goes or does it go into the pockets of locals or something like this. Um, and I think in terms of many government organizations, a lot of people are very suspicious of where the money goes. But you're right, on the website, you can actually see it. Uh, yeah, so- and
1: people, people are right to be a little bit suspicious, especially of some of the government programs, because quite often when you have governments transferring money to other governments, we, you know, we all know what happens. Very little of that money actually gets down mm-hmm. to the local people. In our case at Room to Read, we, we are very proud to you know, say that we, de- we deploy $0.83 cents on the dollar directly to our education programs. We're a very efficient charity. Um, charity Navigator gives us four stars, mm-hmm. their highest ranking. We've received that ranking every year for the last seven years that Charity Navigator has been ranking us. And the question comes up, you know, how do you do that? How do you run, run a tight ship? And in, in the book, I, ta- I have a chapter that's called The War on Overhead. Yeah. And the idea was to take a very business-like approach finding ways to keep our overhead low. So we went out and we said, first of all, we're going to have a no-land rover power. Yeah, I was going to
0: ask you about the no-land rover rule.
1: Well, if, yeah, throughout the developing world, and some of your listeners will have seen this, if you go you know, to the local watering hole in Phnom Penh in Cambodia or the local watering hole in Kathmandu on Friday night, You'll see this long queue of um, Land Rovers and Range Rovers driven by aid workers. And you know, those things cost a lot of money, sixty, seventy thousand dollars per vehicle. And I looked at that and said, This is this is just stupid. Why would you spend money in that way when you could be spending that money instead to get schools open or to get libraries built or to print local language books? I mean, one Land Rover at seventy thousand dollars costs you the amount of money that could be used to print seventy thousand local language children's books at a dollar a book. We took that further though and said, let's find other ways to reduce our overhead costs. And so we, um, when I started talking to investment bankers who have way too many frequent flyer miles <laughs> from flying all around the world, they said, okay, let us use your miles. And so I fly all around the world now and I've, I've had over 5 million miles donated to me by, by bankers who don't, the last thing they want to do is use their miles to fly for pleasure. They're flying too much on business. Right. We, we, we convinced Credit Suisse to, um, give us office space so in london tokyo hong kong sydney for our local fundraising offices we're housed at credit Suisse. they're our landlord they give us an annual check they also never give us a rental invoice we Uh stay for free we have hotels you know hilton as an example gives us 150 free room nights a year so as our staff travels around the world they don't have to pay for hotels Mm. so a, a dozen ideas became 50 ideas became 100 ideas and one of the best things ever was when lafarge the biggest cement company in the world Give us an all-you-can-eat deal on cement, free. <laughs> wow. In Zambia, Farge provides the cement; they provide the transport for it. Voila! The library is much cheaper to build now because the cement's free. Uh huh.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. No. The, you know, a lot of corporations have excess capacities of various kinds, and they don't exactly know what to do with it. Um, and... Well, I
1: talk about that a bit in the book because sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, people have their favorite chair," they say they're intimidated to approach corporations for support because corporations seem so big and monolithic. And what I try to remind people is remember the people who run those companies are human beings and that those people probably have children and they've got a, they've got a dog. They're, you know, just, just think of them as a human being, approach them and tell them, here's what I do. Here's what I'm passionate about and I'd love to get your support.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I agree completely with that. And, you know, I've worked in corporations myself in addition to being an academic and they're run by people and you can talk to them and they'll often work with you. That's that's how they got where they are. That's what I would say. Um let me ask this question because it's of interest to me. The, the New Books Network runs entirely on the internet. We don't we don't produce anything physical. Um how is the internet going to impact your mission and the way you fulfill it? Well, in in the short term it's not really,
1: I mean in the short term, it's not going to have much of an effect because you have to remember that where Room to Read is working, we're working in villages that lack electricity, um, let alone mm-hmm. access to the Internet. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're looking at some pretty you know, primitive conditions in a lot of parts of the world that we work in. And So our approach is decidedly and unapologetically low-tech. Mm-hmm. We're working with training teachers. We're building and upgrading classrooms. We're printing local language books. And, and print is not dead. This whole notion that... Books are going away. I think
0: it's total canard. He should come ridiculous. to my office.
1: You <laughs> should come to my home. My girlfriend and I have, have books stacked <laughs> everywhere. I mean, I, I think it's a nice thing. It's, it's a fun thing for journalists to say, oh, books are dead. Books are going away. I think that's a ridiculous statement. When, I mean, when I see kids in rural Nepal and rural Cambodia who have never seen children's books before, and they walk into that brand-new library, which is a print-rich environment, which is really colorful – and those kids see over a 1,000 books that are on the shelves, mm-hmm. they go crazy. They're, look, they're They're grabbing those books with big smiles on their faces and learning to read. And no child in Cambodia or in Nepal is saying, gosh, I wish I had a tablet. <laughs> no, you, if you give kids access to great books, they're going to read. They're going to be happy. And, and in, in terms of if you, if you take the perspective of the children of the customer, nothing's broken.
0: Yeah, my kids have a then, tablet. They broke it. We're back to books now, and we were always with books, and they don't miss it. <laughs> so, hard to break a book.
1: Tape. It is, and, and you know, I'm so I can tell you that if you look at if you graph, I mean, to get to get nerdy here for a minute, if you draw a graph and on the x-axis you have time, and on the y-axis you have actually the usability or the usefulness of, an, of a device over time, the the electronic device degrades over time. Oh, we yeah. know that it happens. Yeah. Books are consistently useful. Books books are flatlined. Right? It's just consistently useful over time. They don't need to be rebooted. They don't need to have their operating system upgraded. They just simply work. And mm. Room to Read, if people go to our website, they'll see these beautiful, colorful children's books we produce. One dollar equals one book. And one of the highlights for me of my first book tour, for my first book, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, was going on Oprah's show. And Oprah said, "I want." Oprah's team said, we want to do a book drive for you. I said, well, please, don't, don't send us used English books because that's expensive right. to transport overseas. Just tell your viewers one dollar equals one book. Mm-hmm. And we can print more books. And so at the end of the show, Oprah said, you know, $1 equals one book, $50 equals 50 books, $100 equals 100 books. Do it now for the love of reading. Mm-hmm. And, man, we had eight servers that crashed wow. within one minute of, of Oprah saying that. It was beautiful.
0: Well, we were rebooting
1: the servers. Her viewers donated over $3 million. So wow. think about that for a minute, the fact that we could then have enough money to print 3 million additional books for kids. That, that was a golden moment for us.
0: Well, I've got a big smile on my face, and we're about to run out of time. I could talk to you for a long time about this. Let me um, ask you to tell our listeners how to get in touch with Room to Read, uh, how to make an investment, and uh, how to keep up with what you're doing. Well,
1: I, I appreciate the opportunity, and I, and I appreciate people listening in. I, I do hope people will check out the website for the book. There is a microsite for the book, which is very simple. It's, at, it's cre- uh, www.creatingroomtoread.com. That has not only information on the book; it has a link to the first chapter of the book, which is all about opening our 10,000th library and what a milestone that was. It also has information on our book tour. I'll be touring through 25 cities, and so I hope people will check us out. If your listeners are on Twitter, they can follow Room to Read. Uh, we are at Room to Read, and I'm at um, I'm at John Wood RTR, so J O H N W O O D R T R on Twitter. 363,000 followers, and hoping for more. And then finally, the Room to Read website is at www.roomtoread.org. So I do hope people will check it out. And um, Creating Room to Read is a you know, new book. I'm excited to be touring for it. I'm excited that it's releasing. And I do hope people will check it out because it's a, it's a fun book. And it really talks a lot about the solution. And there's nothing quite like the uh, photo insert for the book, which shows kids with their first library mm-hmm. and the smiles on their faces that brings.
0: Color photos in a book. Color fo- beautiful color photos. You don't see them very often. Really great. I was
1: excited. I, I lobbied Penguin to include a 16-page color insert, yeah. uh, color photo insert that said, you know, when, if this can bring our work to life and you see children the day their library opens, it's just going to really inspire people.
0: So yeah, we're
1: excited about that and we're excited for the release of the book.
0: All right. Well, uh, John, let me, first of all, thank you for all the good work you and the people at Room to Read do. So thank you for that. And then let me thank you for being on the New Books Network.
1: You're welcome. It's a great interview. I wish you luck as you scale your entrepreneurial venture, and you can
0: count me in to, uh, <laughs> okay. be, to downloading your podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Marshall. Okay. Bye bye.